Wonderful to be together with you. Yeah. Thankful this week. I'm sure we're all uh, thinking about perhaps going back to the gym or whatever, or eating more. What you know, do what you want to do, right? It's much to be thankful for. But uh, we're thankful that you're with us this morning. Now is the time in our service where our membership uh, takes a contribution to support our local ministry and facilities. So if you're visiting, don't feel compelled to give. We're going to pass the trays around for our membership to give to that, and we're going to continue singing uh, one more song. Actually, before we do that, if Steve, are you here? Uh, after the song, we're going to have Steve uh, Marici come up and announce our speaker this morning. All right, let's sing out. We're singing to the Lord.
man. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, you guys are sounding absolutely phenomenal this morning. My name is Steve Marici, and it's uh, just great to be back in town here with our Westside Fellowship. Amen. Good to see you guys. Got a couple of brief announcements here this morning. Uh, one of them is uh, about a young couple that's uh, about to embark, or actually has embarked on a new chapter in their lives. Uh, it started Friday of this past week. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Kendall Party asked Allie Wingy to marry him. And she said yes. Where are you guys? We got the uh, proud parents of Allie wandering around in here somewhere. Our elder uh, Andy Wingy and his wife Karina. It's great to have them here with us this morning as well. Then uh, one other uh, brief announcement before Steve Staten comes on out to preach this morning is that on December 15th, we have a regional service at Miracosta, and there's going to be a dramatic representation of the birth of Christ. We've got a lot of local talent here that's participating in that. Uh, there's a children's choir, an incredible event to get your family and friends on out to. So please make sure you've got that marked down in your calendar. It is on the uh, West Side website, Facebook page, and uh, there was a, uh, with this wonderful little uh, slide here, you can send that out to your friends too, use that at uh, email, send out evites, whatever the case may be with that, but look forward to seeing everybody there December 15th, and then uh, finally, we'll have Steve Staten here on out on stage in a minute, and I, I hope we give him a real warm welcome, but Steve's a uh, elder, evangelist, teacher, all the way out from Chicago, he's going to be spending the next couple of weeks with us before he comes out at the beginning of the year for an extended period of time. Uh, he's going to be preaching the next two Sundays and the next couple of midweeks. And uh, Steve, uh, in the period of time we've gotten to know him, I, I knew him from afar years ago when he was out in Chicago, but we've really been able to develop an incredible friendship with both Steve and his wife, Tricia, over the last month or so here. And uh, Steve's got a master's in theology, and he's about to close out his, uh, the newest addition to that, a master's in conflict management. So with that, let's give a warm welcome to Steve Staten. Amen. Amen. Brady? Brady? Okay. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Thanks. If we could go ahead and get started right into the, the Word of God. First Peter chapter 1. It is absolutely fantastic to be here today. And you know, every once in a while you, you get on a topic that you just can't wait till you're speaking about. And this is that. And it is about Jesus, but through the perspective of the prophets looking into the future, trying to figure out some things about him. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, verse 10 that is, 1 Peter 1, verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come. Come to you, searching intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. But when they spoke of things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels look to these things. You know, we uh, know a lot about Jesus from the Old Testament around every Christmas and Easter, right? You know, uh, there's a lot of passages that come up. There's these famous messianic passages and they're up on the screen right now, and they're talking about his birth, where he was going to be born, what he'd be called, some timing issues, you know, about, about the arrival of the Messiah, much of it around his birth, some of it around his death on the cross. But there's less frequently uh, cited passages, uh, but they're critical to understand. Not critical meaning negative, but critical meaning crucial, essential, imperative, necessary. And uh, these are passages that provide insight about the timing that Jesus would come, even with some precision. And then what he was going to do 
when he came. I'm, you know, by nature, and as I was here a couple months ago, I've said this, I'm an engineer. Amen, brother. Well, let's talk later. <laughs> and, you know, it's, us engineers, you know, we, we're problem solvers. And we like to peel back and understand. And if we can't understand, it's hard to get in a good space, you know, sometimes, you know. And but the thing I like about the Bible is there's so many things yet to find out that can keep me intrigued all the rest of my life, you know. But this particular uh, study, I, I think it'll be fun for all of us. We're going to look at some less considered passages. Why the Christ would come when he did, Daniel chapter 2. And what was he going to do when he came, Isaiah 59, 61, 62, and Zephaniah 9. Why he would come, timing, that's what the prophets were striving for, looking and searching intently for. And then what was he going to be up to? What was going to be his mission? In Daniel chapter 2, if you could turn with me there. I love the book of Daniel. It's one of my favorite all-time studies, first six chapters of Daniel. After that, it gets pretty complicated. Okay. And Daniel chapter 2, here's the background. Around 600 B.C., Daniel, along with a whole lot of other kids, and this happened in chunks. A few thousand kids at a time would be taken from royal household back in Judea to Babylon, 450 miles straight as the crow flies, longer than that in the journey, about 550 miles. Be taken away from their home to this foreign land where they'd be tried to be deprogrammed, not to believe in the God Yahweh or Jehovah of the Old Testament, but to believe in Marduk and Molech and all these other gods. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's agenda. Then the other thing he was trying to do is blow people away. He was building a massively fantastic city where the walls were so thick that you could have 13 chariots riding around the tops of the walls. He was building in Daniel's time while he was there the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, according to ancient Greek historian. It was just a blowaway, the Ishtar Gate, which is a, a huge gate with a, it's a massive door that is much taller than this whole auditorium. It's actually in Berlin in a museum. And it's just, just blowaway. So he's there, and uh, he's impressing you know, the, the establishment in Babylon, but the the king had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He couldn't interpret it. So he asked his astrologers, astronomers, psychics, sorcerers, all these goofy people, what his dream was. And they said, well, we can't tell you how to interpret it unless you tell us what it was. He said, if you can't tell me what it was, you're not real. And so you're all going to die. Even Daniel would have died in that sweep. Well, Daniel said, hey, uh, I can interpret it. I can get it, get it from God. I can even tell you what it was, but I want you to keep these bad guys alive, you know. And so that's, you know, that's Staten's version, you know. And uh, so basically start in verse 29. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what's going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than the other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation, that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked... O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue. Awesome in appearance, the head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its king's legs of iron and feet of partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And so this was the disturbing part of the dream. So Daniel's going to go on. I'm going to cut a little bit ahead. He's interpreting this dream. This dream that, verse 36, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it for the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed the mankind and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, wherever they live, and he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. The Babylonian period was the period being referred to by the gold. And this period served an important function for God in the history of the human race. It was a period by which his people could be appropriately disciplined. It was almost approximately the length of Nebuchadnezzar's life, his, his reign, about 70 years, extended a little bit beyond him. And it performed that purpose. And then the next king, he says... 
And after yours, in verse 39, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And so what we have is four kingdoms. The second kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, was allowing, after the discipline of God's people, the, the temple to be rebuilt, and then the walls to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and the reestablishment of the religion in some sort of resuscitated fashion. And then the Greek period, under Alexander the Great, Cyrus was the big figure of the Medo-Persian period. And under the Greek period, Alexander the Great made it possible for there to be one language spoken all throughout the Mediterranean world, east to west, the Greek language, and also made it possible for, um, I'm sorry, I went a little too far, uh, made it possible for um, the establishment of synagogues throughout the world. And synagogues were outposts. And what would happen is they would have emissaries coming from Jerusalem, kind of like apostles, to go make sure all the synagogues taught and did the same thing. And they kept bastions of God's views, His morals, and His ethics, the Ten Commandments, out there for the Gentile world to know about God. And the Gentiles weren't pretty impressed with Judaism back then. The Roman period brought about what's called the Peace of Rome, Pax Romana, safe travels, but it also shows the limitation of a government without God because the Roman government was as strong as any other government had ever been in the history of the world up to that time in terms of sheer strength, organization, hierarchy, structure, efficiency, travel, mail, military, everything. It had everything going for it. It was about one of the sickest eras in the history of the human race and the treatment of human life. And so there, there needed to be a change. These are sequences that need to be filled out. Daniel was getting caught up and learning through this vision what God was up to. But Nebuchadnezzar's finding out too, and kind of the hard way, because he views himself as the guy who's going to be around forever. So look here in verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to, to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold to pieces. And you go on, you finish the rest of that passage, you can see this is a messianic vision about the kingdom of Christ that's to come. Now, the Roman period, I would like to read some things to you about uh, the Roman period here. This right there is the Colosseum that was finished being constructed in 79, the age of the apostles that were still alive at that time. Um, but this represents the best that the world had to offer at that time. This was where entertainment took place. This is where people communed. This is where people... It's like the internet of its day. This is where people did stuff they ought not to be doing. This is the pornography of the day. This is the killing slaves and gladiator combats. There were tens of thousands of people would die in a single event that might last a few weeks. This is where leaders were gathered. It was what it was all about. And it was a time when the emperors, this middle part of the first century, were sick. They were so sick that you can't read some of the things that happened in the public places that Nero did out in the public, in church or in Kingdom Kids. It's just so sickening. And so, in the first century... One historian says, through the wide extension of slavery and a wave of corruption that swept the empire that completed its dissolution of morals and offered a period unparalleled in the history for debauchery and wickedness, pagan religion readily adapted itself to the propagation of vice. Women became even more depraved than men, and from the court to the beggar, the whole society was corrupted. The great towns such as Antioch, Alexandria, Corinth, and Ephesus were imitators in Rome and its worst excesses. Tacitus, a Roman historian of that era, said that Rome was the place where 
everything insidious originated. F.W. Maddox says, suicide was considered an open door through which man might escape the woes of life at any time and that he had the perfect right to avail himself of it. Pliny looked at death as one of the best gifts given to men by which a man could remove himself from the miseries of life. And Seneca congratulates the human race on this liberty which is in reach of us all. The lack of abhorrence felt concerning the tremendous loss of life suffered or gladiator combats and the name of the sport points to a passage that we're, it's going to show up on the screen here. That this was the worst time in the history of the human race in terms of opportunity meets disaster because humanity was fallen. But when the set time had fully come, God had sent his son. People didn't want their child. They could, there would be cliffs outside of many towns. Just throw the child off. Some people would make it their living to capture those kids, especially girls, and rebandage them and help them live so they could be raised up into a life of prostitution. And that's the world without God. And you know, our world seems to be headed that way again. He's, he's being edited out of a lot of things. Now, what was he going to do when he came? Let's talk about that now. What was he up to? Isaiah 61 shows that he's coming to meet crucial needs. Isaiah 59 and other passages shows that he's coming to officiate justice. And if you understand these passages, you understand how even Jesus viewed himself when we open up the Gospels. Right from the get-go, this is what he's about. Now, let's look at some of the passages. In Isaiah 61, one and, just look at 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Jesus read this passage as his first opening expression that he's coming out. I'm the dude. He's moving from carpentry. <laughs> and in Nazareth, he read this. Because the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those who are mourned. Jesus is saying this is what he's about. And this prophecy was fulfilled in your hearing, he said at the, Sabbath, at the synagogue. That didn't go so well. They uh, took him up a cliff, and they're going to drive him off the cliff. That's how upset they were. Talk about church conflict. <laughs> and Jesus picked his battles. He goes, I'm on for another day, and he left town. But this is what he was about. You know, Jesus lived this out right before the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous passage of all the uh, New Testament, the life-changing passage for all the world, three chapters, he drew all sorts of people from every walk of life, every belief system, anything, anywhere in the area, pagan, mixture, hybrid, upper religious class, lower, country bumpkins, Samaritans, everybody, demoniacs, paralyzed, he, he got them all. And he drew them to himself, and he met needs. I used to think of helping people becoming Christians was about a study series. It was about driving a point home and winning an argument, and getting them to concur, and just surrender. I used to think that. And many years into the ministry, I thought, hey, you know what, how about if I make sure I'm like Jesus here? And I started to like, meet needs on the inside, heal, strengthen, encourage, bandage up, get in their life, take them on a journey. Those people stayed in the Christian walk better than the people that were run through a formula. Okay? And so, let's do Jesus' way. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Now, this passage is a passage that we're pretty familiar with. The first two verses say that, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. And we typically will draw a wall in a room that shows God on one side, sinners on the other. The wall is called sin that the sinner put up, not God. Great, I mean, a great illustration. But the, there's so much more in the passage. In verse 3, your hands are stained with 
blood. Verse 4, no one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. Verse 5, they hatch the eggs of vipers. Verse 6, their cobwebs are useless for clothing. Verse 7, their feet rush into sin. Verse 8, the way of peace they do not know. Verse 9, so justice is far far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. Verse 10, like the blind we grope along the wall. Verse 12, like our offenses, for our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Verse 14, justice is driven back. Verse 15, truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no, no one, no justice and no one to intervene. Verse 16 says, So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Verse 18, according to what they've done, so he will pay wrath to his enemies, retribution to his foes, and he will pay the islands their due. Verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Now, these traits here, the things that he's coming to do, are based on a particular time in human history where this passage acutely fits precisely when justice was at its all-time low. We're not talking about Rome right now. We're talking about people of the covenant that's on Isaiah's uh, radar. We're talking about a time when corruption reached its maximum and there was nobody to really stand in the gap. Somebody had to come in and sort out those who needed to be dealt with and those who needed to be forgiven. And this era was typified by one family, clan, There was, around the birth of Christ, a rabbi by the name of Annas, a Sadducee. You know, they call them Sadducees because they don't believe in the resurrection. So they're sad, you see. (laughs) You'll never forget that. You'll never forget that. This Sadducee and five or six men who were his sons and son-in-laws controlled Judea for about 65 or 70 years. Today, they are viewed by Jews as the worst Jews in the history of Judaism. Josephus, the Jewish historian that betrayed the Jews and decided to go with the Romans writes the Jewish history and describes this family. They were a mafioso family who controlled the currencies so they could make money off the top. They'd be money changers. The selling of livestock so that they were farmers, by the way, so their livestock would make a lot of money around Passover time when you needed some lambs and sheep, you know, and that nobody else could sell theirs. They got really, really wealthy. And they, had, they actually turned Jerusalem into like the bizarre marketplace. They controlled currency, everything. They were most loathed family. Now, what would happen if they were to meet one day, Jesus and the Messiah? What would happen? This big mob and a peasant carpenter turned rabbi, also known as the Messiah, Okay. There's some real precision going on here. Jesus has come to address Rome. Jesus has come to address Jerusalem. Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne, and James Bond have nothing on Jesus. (laughs) He is the underdog of underdogs. He did not come with an army. Zephaniah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes in on a little creature, one that's probably barely able to hold him. This is a statement that's being made. Isaiah 62.11, The Lord has made a proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, See, your Savior comes. 
See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. Just like the other passages that we've read, he's coming to bring both. But he's coming in a humble form. What happened when he actually took on the family of Annas and Caiaphas? On reaching Jerusalem, this is just coming in off the colt, he entered the temple course, began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise to the temple courts. And he, as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief preachers and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him. You know what, that was on a Sunday. Jesus went into Jerusalem and taught against them, Matthew 23, on a Monday. Then he would duck out a gate on a Tuesday, duck out a gate on a Wednesday. Do it again. He did it throughout the week until they killed him. But he wasn't afraid of them. He was being strategic. He wanted to get the massive exposure and cover he could to get the word out. So when he died, the whole community would be up in arms. Everybody would know who he was by that time. There's no way that anybody in Jerusalem hadn't heard about him by that Friday. This is strategic. This is not like this, the Snowden and this Julian Assange who put something out there and they go into hiding. Jesus is like stepping up to the plate, willing to take the outcome from what he has done. This is just so amazing. I hope that as we take communion in a few minutes that you were like, wow, we serve a really cool king and savior. You know, I'm 54, and I tell you what, I'm less impressed by revolutions, books, movements, men, empires, megachurches, everybody. And the older I get, the more impressed I am by Jesus Christ. And that's who we serve. Every moment that we get our eye off the target, we're going to mess up. We're going to be a movement that makes more mistakes and sins and hurts. Every moment that we put our eyes back on Jesus... And we do what the apostles did, or the prophets. We search intently to know him. That corrective that we apply will give us a great church, will give us a great flock, and it will give us a great legacy. But it can't come from us. It's got to be because we're focused on the king. And that we're becoming like him. That's what this is about. So the choices then, in the first century, were Rome and Jerusalem, which to me represents the world and all it has to offer. The apex of everything was in Rome at the time, and look what they did with it. Look where it leads you. Or the religious establishment. Let me say something about the religious establishment. Sometimes they're hyper-conservative, and sometimes they're hyper-liberal. But both extremes just want to tell you what to do and control your life. And we don't need either end. We don't need religiosity. And so the choices are the world, religion, or Jesus. And I just want you to think about Jesus. What image should show up right now? What would be the image that you need to think about, I would suggest you think about, as you take communion? What would be the thing that would convey what this is all about that we are doing? What's going to show up? Anybody want to guess? Yes, and? Because of the cross, this image is showing up. Yep, somebody got it. It's the empty tomb. This is our message. We're not about big structures and organized this, that, or whatever. We're not about controlling people's lives. We're about the Savior, His message, and getting that word out for a resurrected life. Let's pray. God and Fathers, we take communion. We're just uh, inspired by who Jesus was and is. And we're thankful for the prophets who set a good example for us, searching intently. 
And Father, as we take communion, we want to be reminded that we want to be seekers too. We want to be looking intently backwards as to what Jesus was like in this world and what we ought to be like and, and who he is and how we can best um, be his representatives in our life. Thank you for the forgiveness as was accomplished at the cross. That forgiveness accomplished not by any performance or merit or works or anything from us, but what was given to us freely through your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Sing the lyrics of Amazing Grace as we pass the trains. Chains are gone, I've been set 
Let's go ahead and pray and we'll uh, collect our contribution. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, this amazing living example. Thank you that we can look to him, that we can pray to you, that we can access you through your spirit, that we find you in the scriptures, Father, and you find us. We find you in our hearts, Father. Please use this contribution to your glory, Father. And thank you for the communion. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the service. Thank you for the message that we heard this morning. And thank you for each soul that is here this morning worshiping you in spirit and in truth, Father. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name.